Thank you, Steve. Well, hey, good morning, everybody. We've been in a series. We're working our way through the book of Ephesians. And since it's been a minute, it's been actually three weeks since we opened up the book of Ephesians together. You know, we did uh, Easter service, and then we, last week we did a baptism service, which was awesome. So we're getting back into uh, the book today. And because of that, I think some review might be helpful. So we've said before that the book of Ephesians has two major sections, right? Chapters 1 through 3. And then chapters 4 through 6, chapters 1 through 3 talk to us about how to find rest in Christ. Or you might say it this way, chapters 1 through 3 talk to us about our, our identity in Christ. They tell us what Christ has done for us. And then chapters 4 through 6 describe the way that we should walk that out. In other words, because God's done so many incredible things for us, Here's how we should live in light of that. Here's how we should think in light of that. Here's how we should behave in light of that. Here's the kind of marriages that we should have. Here's the way we should think about the darkness in this world. Here's the way we should interact with it and on and on and on. So you've got this uh, resting in Christ theme in the first three chapters and then you've got this walking it out um, in chapters four through six and um, yeah, so the key, now here's what I would just say here is that trying to live out Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 without an understanding of what God has done for us in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 is futility. It's just like striving after the wind. The Christian life is a supernatural life. It requires a supernatural connection to Jesus. It requires supernatural love. It requires supernatural power to live it. Uh, so you have, to, you have to soak in. You have to stay close to what Jesus has done for you as it's described in the first three chapters before you just jump in and try to live that out on your own because that isn't even possible. Now, today we're in Ephesians uh, chapter 5, and in, in verse 1, here's what we're told. Be imitators of God. I don't know if any of you remember this. In the 90s, there was a series of commercials that came out when Michael Jordan was at the height of his popularity, and the commercials were this. Be like Mike. Remember that? Be like Mike. Now, listen, the biblical authors would say, no, that's shooting way too low. I want you to be imitators of your heavenly father. As dearly loved children, I want you to walk in love. That's one of the ways that you can imitate God. So in the same way that a stool might have three legs, right? And you need every one of these legs to support, uh, you know, someone's weight right? In fact, if you removed one of the legs of these, these stools, um, it, there'd just be pain and disillusionment and futility. And so Paul tells us here in Ephesians 5, hey, I want you to be imitators of God, and you do that in three ways. You do that first of all, and we looked at this three weeks ago, you do that first of all by walking in love. That's the first leg of the stool. You walk in love. And we looked at that and we discovered that walking in love looks like forgiving. It looks like forgiveness. It looks like encouragement. We also said that uh, love offers itself for other people. But make no mistake, friends, when it comes to building the foundation of your life, 
Walking in love is absolutely one of those core foundational pieces. Um, So let me just ask you, how are you doing at walking in love? Is there someone you need to forgive? Is there someone that you need to serve? Is there someone that you need to encourage? It's walking in love is what it looks like to be an imitator of God because that's what Jesus did for you. Jesus showed up. He served you. Jesus forgave you through his finished work on the cross, right? Jesus is what love looks like as we follow him. So being an imitator of God looks like walking in love. Today, we're going to talk about another leg of the stool. We're going to look at uh, being an imitator of God looks like walking in the light because we're children of light. So we're called to love because we're dearly loved children, and we're called to walk in the light because we've been transformed into children of the light. And then next week, we're going to look at the third leg, which is I want you to be an imitator of God, not just by walking in love and walking in light, but I want you to walk in wisdom. And the reason we walk in wisdom is because we've been given the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit within us to lead us and to guide us, to help us make wise choices. So listen, in the same way that someone, um, you know, if they tried to sit on this stool, in the same way that it would collapse under their weight if all three legs weren't working. Friends, if you're building a life... And, you know, maybe you're okay at walking in love and maybe you're okay at walking in wisdom. But this walking in the light thing, you've got to to do that better. Listen, if you fail to walk worthy in one of those three areas, uh, your life won't bear up under the weight of your expectations. I mean, your life is just going to be littered with disappointment and discouragement. So getting this right is uh, so, so important. So again, that means today we're going to look at, well, what does it mean to walk in the light? Now, uh, he, he just jumps right in and tells us what it looks like to actually walk in the light. And I want to talk about first, why walk in the light? Well, it's because in verse 5, he says that we've been transformed from children of darkness to children of light. Therefore, we should walk in the light. In other words, we should think and behave and live in a way that's congruent with whom God has made us to be, with whom, with who God says that we are. And then he begins to describe what darkness looks like. And here's what he says. Among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Now, this is so convicting uh, because he says that when it comes to sexual immorality, we can't even have a hint of that in our lives. And it's important, I think, that we kind of soak in this for a minute, that we really grapple with um, the weight, you know, of these words. And let me define for you what sexual immorality is. Sexual immorality is simply any sexual relationship, sexual thought, sexual act that occurs outside the marriage bed. 
So uh, one of the things we know about God is that he's a covenantal God. In fact, in a few verses, he's going to talk about what marriages should look like for people who've been, um, who's, who've been made children of the light. And so um, uh, marriage uh, in Scripture, so sometimes when people think about marriage, they'll say this. Well, you know what? Marriage is just a piece of paper. I don't need a piece of paper to prove my, you know, commitment to someone else. Well, no marriage isn't. Marriage is two people who promise before God and in front of their friends and their family to be there for one another. They say, look, when things get tough, I won't bail. I will be here. I won't let you down. Through thick and thin, I will be here for you. I will be an island of certainty, a little oasis of certainty in a world that is filled with so much unpredictability and unreliability. You can count on me. I will be there. Uh, so that's what marriage is. So sexual immorality then would include uh, things like premarital sex. It would include extramarital sex. It would include prostitution. It would include pornography. It would include sexual fantasizing about someone else. So seriously, not a hint? I mean, are you kidding me? I don't know about any of you, but this is incredibly convicting for me. And I am certain that um, if I were to poll each of you around the room, every single one of us in the room would say, you know what, I have fallen short in that area of my life. I mean, I think it's safe to say that every one of us in the room um, would struggle in the light of this you know, difficult truth. And I would just say this, if you're one of those folks with me and like me, just be willing to soak in this for a few minutes. Be willing to be uncomfortable in this, and I'll tell you why. Because you won't learn to value the grace of God until you soak in the truth of God. Soaking in the truth of God is what makes you grateful for and appreciative of the grace of God. And it's so easy, isn't it, in a culture like ours, which is so highly sexualized, it's easy to think that, you know, we're doing okay in the arena of sexual immorality simply because we're comparing ourselves to children of darkness, people who are walking in darkness, because that's what our culture is doing. They're children of darkness and they're walking in darkness. And so we can kind of compare ourselves and go, hey, well, I'm probably, I mean, hey, at least I'm trying. I mean, I've got friends and they're not even trying. You know, I mean, they're just trying to bed down as many women as they can. Uh, but hey, at least, I'm not like that. I'm at least trying. And it's easy to kind of get comfortable and settle for that. And what Paul would remind us of, friends, is that children of light should never compare themselves to children of darkness. Ever, ever, ever. Um, it's a terrible point of comparison. Our uh, our comparison is our Heavenly Father who's transformed us um, into children of light. And, you know, darkness has no place in the light, right? 
And light only exposes darkness. In fact, think about this for a minute. Light and darkness can't coexist. When light walks into a room, darkness has to retreat. We'll come back to that in a few minutes. But then he goes on and explains a little more what this darkness looks like. He says, nor should there be obscenity or foolish talk or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. I think this is so insightful. What he's saying is this. He's saying, look, you know, our mouths aren't meant for obscenity. They're not meant for coarse joking. They're not meant for foolish talk. But they are meant, and they do glorify God when we're grateful, when, when we use our mouths to be thankful. And I would say that uh, gratitude here is the, the key to unlocking this door. So if you're here this morning and you're a little convicted because maybe, you know, you've been doing some coarse talk or uh, foolish talk or coarse jesting, um, the way to begin to, to get ahead of that behavior is to go on a gratitude hunt. So here's what I've kind of found as a pastor. I find that people find what they're looking for in life. So if you are looking for things to be grateful for in your life, you will become grateful. If you look for things to be disappointed with, you can find plenty of those. You always find what you look for. So, for example, if you're looking for a person to encourage you're going to be able to find people to encourage. However, if you're looking for a person to disappoint you or to let you down, you're going to find that too. See, people always find what they're looking for. So the question is, what are you looking for? Are you looking for the things that God has done in your life that you're grateful for, that you're thankful for? If you are, speak those things both to God and to other people. That one discipline, that one habit could revolutionize your life today. It could take you out of the land of discontent and place you firmly in the promised land. In the kingdom of God, just that one thing, just, just a mouth that speaks gratitude and thanksgiving. And then he goes on. Here's what he says. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, no impure or greedy person, such a man is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of God. So instead of letting off the brakes, Paul just makes us more and more uncomfortable with these words, right? Now listen, as a teacher of God's word, it is so important that we soak in this for a moment. Because here's what Paul is saying in this verse. He's saying that our idols, whether they be money, whether they be romance, whether they be sex, whether they be power, or whether they be comfort, what he's saying is that our idols can cause us to lose our inheritance in the kingdom of God. Now, he's not saying that those things can keep us out of the kingdom of God, but any inheritance, any reward that we would get there, any standing that we would have in the kingdom, that gets forfeited. You know why? Because we were distracted and entertained by our idols instead of Jesus. In fact, one of my favorite pastors, Tim Keller, uh, 
I think he's one of the best teaching pastors in America today. He says that the central premise of the Old Testament and the New Testament is the rejection of idolatry in favor of the worship of Jesus. And I think he's right. I think it's a primary polemic of Scripture, and I think it's important that we take these words very, very seriously. Because what Paul is saying is that they, our idols can cause us to enter the kingdom of God without an inheritance and without a legacy. And it would be tempting, I think, as a teacher of God's word, for me to start to try to offer you, uh, you know, maybe, maybe soft serve or soft sell this. And so Paul goes on, and here's what he says. Let no one deceive you with empty words. In other words, don't just listen to teachers who tell you what you want to hear, who tickle your ears. I want you to grapple with the truth of my word because that kind of behavior, God's wrath comes on people who are disobedient with that kind of behavior. See, And then he goes on and he says this, therefore do not be partners with them. In other words, he's saying, look, you're children of the light. They're children of darkness. You're walking in the light. You're meant to walk in the light. They're walking in the darkness. You can't be partners with people like that. Light and darkness can't coexist together. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord, live as children of light. So uh, this is so important here. He's just saying, look, uh, he appeals to our identity. He's saying, look, I want you to live in congruence with whom God has made you. He's called you light. He's called you a child of the light. That means you need to walk in the light. Uh, notice too that he says you were once darkness but now you are light in the Lord this is so important because what this tells us friends is we are not simply improved like when when you invited Jesus to become part of your life you didn't become you know Troy 2.0 or Janet 2.0 you aren't improved you were transformed You were transformed from darkness into light. This is is way more than just self-improvement or, uh, you know, running a moral treadmill. No, he's saying live in congruence with how God has made you. And then he goes on to say this, kind of this last phrase. Oh, and by the way, find out what pleases the Lord. Now, how do you do that? How do you find out what pleases the Lord? Well, you read God's word. You study God's word. In other words, you discover God's will by discovering his word. You come to know God as you come to know and understand his word. And then he goes on have nothing to do with fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. I mean, that's what light does, right? For it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible, for it is light that makes 
everything visible. So Paul's reminding us of two things here. He's reminding us that not only does the light uh, expose what is done in the darkness, but he's also saying, look, the light actually chases back the darkness itself. When light walks into a room, darkness disappears. So uh, one of the things I love about the book of Ephesians that we're walking through and that we're studying is a little later in Ephesians chapter 6, he's going to talk to us about how to walk in the darkness, how to confront the spiritual forces of darkness. And we're going to find this out even today, but we live in a, in a world that, um, you know, we're, we're, uh, that's ruled by uh, the prince of darkness, we live in that world, so we have to know how to do battle there. And so one of the things I love, love, love about Ephesians is it helps us know that. It helps us do that. And so he says, uh, and so here's the good news. As children of light, friends, you do not have to be held captive by the powers of darkness. You no longer have to walk in darkness because the light of Jesus within you chases back that darkness. And then Paul gives this amazing promise. And I want you to notice that it's a promise that's made to believers. And it's at the very end of this verse. And I really want to spend the rest of our time together teasing this out. He says this, this is why it is said. So he's about to quote something that's well known to the people of his day. This is why it is said, wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Now, here's what he's telling us. He's telling us that it's possible for men and women, to get distracted from following Jesus. In other words, they just get lulled to sleep. They fall asleep at the wheel. Now, and people can get distracted by lots of things, right? We can be distracted by our idols. We can begin to serve things like money or romance or sex or power or comfort, and those things can distract us. We can also be distracted simply because we live in a consumeristic culture, right? I mean, wouldn't you agree that in any given moment, we have 15 good options at our disposal? I mean, because of streaming services, the number of uh, television shows that are available, the, the number of genres of music that we can listen to, uh, the kind of games that we can play, the kind of sports that we can watch. I mean, friends, you and I have endless opportunities to be entertained. And while on one hand, that's really cool and awesome, on the other hand, that can distract us from sincerely and wholeheartedly following our Jesus, right? So he's just saying, look, don't allow yourself. Wake up. I mean, wake up. Don't, don't get lulled into sleep as a follower of Jesus. Don't, get, uh, don't grow listless because of the uh, countless entertainment options that you have. Don't grow uh, barren in your faith because you've been walking in the darkness or you've been entertaining your idols. This is really what he's getting at. Now, uh, what most scholars agree that the source that Paul is quoting here is an early Christian hymn that was based on Isaiah chapter 60. 
So it isn't an exact quote of Isaiah 60. It's an exact quote of this hymn, which has now been lost to time. It no longer exists. But we do still have Isaiah 60. And so what I want to do is I want to tease out Isaiah 60 to help provide context for what this challenge means. Wake up, old sleeper. Rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Now, um, so here's what Isaiah 60 says. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See? Darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Then you will look and be radiant. Your heart will throb and swell with joy. So I want you to notice this phrase. The glory of the Lord rises upon you. And in this context, God's glory is likened to the sun coming up in the morning to the dawning of the sun. He says, the glory of the Lord rises upon you. Now, when I was growing up and in college in the 80s, there was a commercial that was out that was really, really popular. It was a Wendy's commercial, and a little old lady whispered the punchline of the commercial. Anybody remember what the little old lady said? You guys watch a lot of TV, don't you? Yeah, you bet. Where's the beef? Where's the beef? Now listen, when people come to churches and they sit in pews and they don't encounter the glory of God, they have every right to say, where's the meat? The glory of God, let me say this differently, when you use words like yearn or crave or desire, you know what, and you may not articulate it this way. You may not think this is what you're doing. You may not even be aware. But do you know what you most crave, most yearn for, most desire? It's the glory of God. You and I were made to soak in the glory of God. You will never be complete apart from the glory of God. Of God, And so uh, that's what he's saying here. In other words, I'm saying churches need to traffic in God's glory. So this invitation to rise up, old sleeper, is an invitation to bathe in the glory of God, to be aware of it, to be in awe of it, to, to chase it, to pursue it, to make it a goal of our lives. And notice too, he says this, the whole earth is covered in darkness. In other words, what he's saying is the, this world that we live in is a difficult place to live. And in the last two and a half years, you didn't need the author of Isaiah to tell you that, did you? I mean, we've all experienced great darkness in the last two and a half years. Darkness in the form of loss, darkness in the form of disappointment because it's disappointing to walk in the darkness I mean listen walking in the darkness is just flat out dangerous I'll talk more about that in 
just a minute. But what he's saying is, look, we live in a world where darkness is the norm. That means that life is going to sometimes be hard. It is going to be painful. It is going to be Dis, uh, disappointing. It's going to be filled. There will be seasons where you have disillusionment. And as I said, walking in darkness can just be painful. Let me give you an example of that. So this past summer, my family and I went down just outside of Madison, Indiana to Clifty Falls State Park. How many of you have ever been? Awesome place. If you've never been there, I highly recommend that you go. And one of, the pl- one of the things we did on one of the trails, there's a cave that you can step off of and you kind of walk through this cave. And the cave is just deep enough and just long enough that when you first step into it, if you don't have a light or a flashlight, it is just utter darkness. Now listen, when you're in a cave and you can't see what's in front of you, You know what that results in? It results in things like fear, and it results in things like anxiety, because you don't know what you're going to bump into, right? You don't know if you're going to bump into a bear. You don't know if you're going to bump into a bat. You don't know if you're going to bump into a spider. You don't know if you're going to bump into a snake. You don't know if you're going to bump into a stalagmite or a stalactite. You don't know what you're going to encounter when you're in a dark cave. Furthermore, you've probably noticed this. When you're in a dark cave, usually they're really slippery, right? They're moist and they're damp. And so it's really hard to get your footing when you're trying to walk in darkness. So you walk through that cave, you walk through that darkness, you come out on the other end bleeding, You come out on the other end uh, in pain because you just walked into something that you didn't anticipate. Listen, friends, when people walk in darkness, it results in things like fear and anxiety and worry because walking in the darkness is uncomfortable. And today we live in a world, Isaiah said it was true then and it's true now, that we live in in a world that is covered in darkness. And then notice what else the author of Isaiah says. He says, nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Now he's just saying something that we all kind of know here. He's just saying that light draws people in the same way that a flame draws a moth. Light draws people out of the darkness. People will move toward the light. I mentioned that a few weeks ago, my wife and I went on a cruise for our 35th wedding anniversary. I'll tell you my very favorite activity on the cruise was sitting out on my balcony at night. We were uh, traveling. I didn't know this, but there are hundreds of islands in the Caribbean. And we were sailing to the north and going, our ship was facing south. So I could just see all these, like a little patch of lights over here on this island, a little patch of lights over here on this island, a big patch of lights over here on this bigger patch of island. And it was mesmerizing. I was drawn to it because people, they're drawn to the light. Now I tell you this because as a child of light, your life, the way you behave, the way that you think, the way that you act is meant to draw people because that's what light does. That's what children of light should do. I remember, some of you know my story. I won't go into it in depth, but you know, when I was in high school, my best friend was a child of light, and I was a child of darkness. And 
he recognized that about me, and so he invited me to live in his home. He, he recognized that I was floundering, that I had no direction, no supervision, no nothing. And so I was invited to live in a household of light. And I had never in my life experienced love and light like I did in that household. And it was attractive to me and it made me want to change. It met what I experienced and felt in that home drew me out into the light, made me a child of light because that's what light does. And then there's this other amazing promise, the final promise in, I, in the book of Isaiah. Then you will look and be radiant. Your heart will throb and swell with joy. So he tells us that, we, that as God's glory rises on us, right, that we're going to be radiant, But how does that work? How does that actually happen? Well, as the glory of the Lord rises over us, we reflect his glory to one another and back to him. See, you and I don't have a light in and of ourselves, but we're excellent reflectors. And one of my favorite illustrations about this, so if you've been around more than three or four years, you've heard me use this illustration before, but I think it's fantastic for what we're talking about this. So my favorite example is found in our sky, in our own solar system. Everybody recognizes what this is. So the moon is around 240,000 miles from earth. It's actually the largest and brightest object of our night sky. The moon's orbit around our own orbit actually helps to stabilize our planet's wobble and to moderate our climate. And many of you probably know this, but when you go to the beach, uh, you experience high tide and low tide because of the gravitational pull of the moon and where the moon uh, is rotating on its own axis. But what you may not be aware of is that... um, The moon doesn't generate any light in and of itself, but it's an excellent reflector of light. It reflects the light of the sun back to us. So as the sun rises on the moon, it reflects the glory of the sun. And in the same way, when God's glory rises above us, we reflect his glory back to him and to one another. See? So then notice the result of that, of reflecting God's glory to other people and back to God. It says, you're going to be radiant. And as a result of that, your heart is going to throb with passion. And you're going to know untold joy. See, the reality for us in this room, friends, is that you and I are most at home in the universe when we are in God's presence, when we're sitting and soaking in his glory. It's what you were created for. I mean, this this starts to hit at the very core of who and what we are and what meaning and purpose in life looks like. And he says, listen, 
When you're in the presence of God, when you're experiencing God's glory, your pulse is going to race, your heart is going to throb with passion, and you are going to know true joy. Not just circumstantial happiness based on how things are going or not going, but you're going to know joy as an anchor to your soul. Friends, you don't want to forfeit this promise So who is here today and you need to rise up, O sleeper, and rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you because it's so easy for God's people to become distracted. Now, one of the ways that we remember what God has done for us here, one of the ways that we remember and celebrate the presence of God that we invite the glory of God to dwell here is in something we call communion. Now, communion was instituted by Jesus, and we're going to take communion today a little bit differently than we have in the past. So let me walk you through it. So you can see we have communion tables in the same spot. So we want to invite you to come, receive a cup, receive the bread. You can also go to the back stations if you're closer back there. But instead of coming maybe to the altar or going back to your seat and taking that individually... We want to invite you, we want to take, we want to remember together. We want to remember as one. We want to remember in community. So as you're coming up and you're getting the bread and the cup, we want to invite you just to take it back, sit in your seat and worship as Pastor Brandon sings, Jesus paid it all. And we, we chose that song for a reason, right? Because, listen, what that means is Jesus didn't just make a down payment for your sin. He didn't make a partial payment. He didn't, he didn't make, you know, eight, an 80% payment and expect you to make up the other 20%. Jesus paid it all. He paid for it completely. He paid for it totally. And that's why God's glory rises as we remember that together because it's giving him glory it's not about what you or I did it's about what Jesus has done on our behalf so I'm going to pray and then I'm going to invite you to come and take the elements back to your seat and then I will come back and prompt you and we're going to remember our Jesus together heavenly father we thank you lord Jesus that you paid not in part not just a down payment. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you paid it all. And so we remember that together here in these next few moments. We give you the glory that you're due. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. And so now come and receive. The altar is open.